Well, I wonder if I were to put someone on the spot right now, just looking across Zoom, wondering who I might choose. If I were to choose one person and I had to get them up and I asked them to go through and look at every screen that was on the, on Zoom and comment on their friendship with each person individually. Give me two words to describe how they were a friend to them. I wonder what they might say when it came to you. Can you imagine how intense that would be? If they were just so honest about you as a friend, just imagine the weight as it comes to you, you know it's you coming and you wait. What two words would they choose? What kind of friend are you? Committed, sacrificial, selfless, fun, lighthearted, critical, prickly, difficult, awkward, opinionated, self-centered. What characterizes your friendships? That's what Paul asked in the second half of chapter two. Last week, we heard Paul's challenge from verse five. Have a look back, keep Philippians 2 open. Have a look back at verse five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I remember last week we saw what Jesus is like, his nature. And now we come into the second half of the chapter and the link is there in verse 12. Therefore, it says in light of all we've seen last week about who the Lord Jesus is, about his nature. In light of that, how will you live your lives? How will your relationships reflect the Lord Jesus? And Paul, what he does is he gives some specific instructions. And then he, he helps us by fleshing out, gives us two examples of people. But look at verse 12 and Paul's challenge. It might seem a bit unsettling. He says, continue to work out your salvation. Continue to work out your salvation. Well, hold on, Paul. What exactly are you saying here? Is Paul saying that the people he's writing to in Philippi, they aren't saved? They have to keep working at it? Is he saying they've got to do more work to earn their salvation have they got to prove themselves are they confused is there something they've not quite grasped they've got to work out well no it's more like a gym workout it's the exercise of their salvation it's the outworking of the salvation that they already have in jesus I read this helpful summary this week. Your own salvation is to be understood not as an objective yet to be reached, certainly not as a benefit to be merited, but as a possession to be explored and enjoyed ever more fully. The proper models are the command of a school teacher to a class to work out a problem. The problem in math is possessed but waits to be unraveled. 
or the counsel to a newly married couple to work at your marriage for marriage once possessed is possessed in full but merits a lifetime of exploration enjoyment development and discovery see paul's consistent in what he said before when you trust in jesus you have been saved you have been transformed by the good news of jesus to be presented right before god that's the aspect of salvation we call justification declared right before god and yet part of our salvation is that we are being transformed to be more and more like jesus each day it's in the words of Mottia, who I just read, it's an unravelling of the salvation we already have. An aspect of salvation we call sanctification, becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus. And look at verse 13. Paul's definitely not adding things that the Christian must do in order to earn their salvation. Look what he says. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose it's not more you must do but it's god continuing to transform so if you trust in jesus god has done what you could not do by yourself he has transformed you and if you trust in jesus the verse 13 says it's god who works in you doing what you cannot do by yourself transforming you the good news of the Lord Jesus is a transforming work of salvation. You're being sanctified. And look at the verse, your will and your actions are becoming more like the Lord Jesus. It's a daily workout of our salvation that we'd be more and more like Jesus. And so Paul says that because he wants to address the Philippian church by saying there's an issue of sanctification there's there's a challenge here for you there's something that I need to ask what's the question well is town church Philippi full of grumbling or of joy what characterizes their friendships are they being lived out in view of the Lord Jesus and so as we come to this passage, the question we're being asked tonight is the same. Are we being transformed to live more like the Lord Jesus? Is Town Church Bista full of grumbling or joy in our relationships? I wonder who comes to mind when you think of a classic grumbler. It probably wasn't Mr. Grumble, a lesser known character of the Mr. Men books. If you're anything like me, looking around at some faces on the screen. Yeah, you wouldn't have known Mr. Grumble is actually a completely different character to Mr. Grumpy. I'm clearly a Mr. Men novice. But I learned the difference uh, on the Mr. Men Wikipedia page. It says this, Mr. Grumble is a character who is never satisfied and constantly complains. He does seemingly long for companionship and acknowledgement and is in that sense more social than Mr. Grumpy, for example. See, grum grumbling is a bit more pointed than just the, the classic 
Eeyore character of being grumpy. It's always having someone to complain about or, or seeking to complain about something to someone else. Mr. Grumble lets the attitude of discontent characterize his relationships. Maybe as you thought of grumbling, the people or the person that came to mind was the Israelites in Exodus 16, a time where grumbling is used in the Bible. The whole congregation of Israel, God's people, who'd been in slavery under the oppressive Pharaoh in Egypt, they were rescued by God. They were brought out of captivity. But as soon as they are, they're more set on grumbling against Moses and Aaron's and Aaron, their leaders, than giving thanks for the great rescue. See, grumbling is not just an activity of conflict. It's a mindset. And Paul's saying this grumbling nature, it doesn't fit for someone who trusts in Jesus. So here's the challenge. Look at verse 14. Do everything without grumbling. Do everything without grumbling. Self-isolate at home without grumbling. Work with people at church that aren't like you without grumbling. Submit to the authorities placed above you without grumbling. Face up to opposition for being a Christian without grumbling. Be patient with church family without grumbling. Because Paul here, he wants to make a case that grumbling and joy don't go together. Remember Paul's writing with joy so that the church in Philippi might have joy. And he's saying here that the outworking of a believer's salvation that they have cannot be grumbling. Grumbling isn't the Christian workout. Joy is. It's just like those words at the beginning. As you thought about what someone might describe you as, I couldn't possibly have described someone with two words that don't fit, like patient and critical. It just doesn't work. I was encouraged to watch the Lance Armstrong documentary on iPlayer this week. So I had a little watch and I found it fascinating. If you don't know Lance Armstrong, he's notorious for being the disgraced cyclist. He was the best cyclist in the world, seven times in a row, winner of Tour de France. He survived cancer and raised millions for his uh, cancer charity. But he did all that whilst he lied about the fact he'd taken performance-enhancing drugs. He's a pretty intense character. And this documentary, Lance, it unpicks some of the questions that people had about him. And it's so fascinating the way he still answers questions about what's happened. But one thing I found really interesting was when he was questioned about why he lied. He said, the moment I signed up to take performance-enhancing drugs, I had to lie. The only way I could possibly tell the truth, he said, is if no one ever asked me 
about it. And that was never going to happen. So when I'm asked, why did I lie? The, the answer is because I took drugs. He said, the moment I took drugs, it was impossible to tell the truth. They couldn't possibly go together. And Paul says, grumbling and joy don't go together. Paul couldn't possibly describe the church as both grumbling and joyful. He's calling them away from one and to another. And so Paul gives a few reasons why his Christian readers shouldn't grumble. Firstly, don't grumble. It's not who you are anymore. Look at the first reason Paul gives. Look at verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And see, the danger is we read that and we read the word become in that sentence and we treat it like a law. It's something that we have to do to attain a certain level of being a Christian, to attain salvation. But if we do that, we miss the whole point of what's been said and what Paul's made specifically clear, if you trust in Jesus, you have been saved. You are a child of God. You don't need to grumble. In fact, it's incompatible. To be a child of God and to go on grumbling just doesn't work. And so as the good news of the Lord Jesus continues to transform someone who trusts in Jesus, as you go on working out your salvation, as you go on being sanctified, being made more like Jesus, you will become pure and blameless. That's exactly what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation, go on being transformed. Don't grumble. It's not who you are anymore. Don't grumble, it's not who you are anymore. Don't grumble. It's starving you of joy. Remember the title of our series, Unspeakable Joy. Remember how we've seen all along the way, Paul, repeatedly in his circumstances that could have been awful. He could have had real complaint over. He never seems to grumble about what's going on. Because all along the way, he's been able to rejoice in what God is doing. He's been able to rejoice in the gospel. See, at the heart of grumbling is an attitude that says, God, it's not fair. Grumbling says, God, I deserve more than this. It says, I'm, it's not fair. I can't be content in these circumstances. God, why have you done this? God, I deserve more. God, I deserve what they've got. Grumbling says, I should have gifts like you've given to others. Grumbling says, it's not fair that that person treated me like that. It's not fair that I'm not getting recognition. Grumbling says, God, I want more. It's the kind of thing a stroppy child says. And grumbling starves us of joy. I wonder, do you find yourself comparing yourself to others at church? saying, why don't I get what they have? Why don't I have their money, their gifts, their abilities? 
Do you find yourself complaining about the way others do things? That's the kind of grumbling that prevents you finding joy. Paul says, don't grumble, it's starving you of joy. But joy says something completely different. Joy will extinguish grumblings. Look at verse 17. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. You see, Paul has this joy that extinguishes the grumbling he could have about his circumstances. We've seen it time and time again. He's not saying, why am I ill? God, it's not fair. Why am I in prison? Why do I face opposition? Why am I in lockdown? God, it's not fair. He doesn't say that. Instead, Paul has this same perspective we've seen throughout the book. Paul doesn't say it's not fair on me. Paul says it's not fair that God has shown me such love through the Lord Jesus. It's not fair that the Lord Jesus suffered and died in my place that I might go to be with him forever. You see, joy says it's not fair too, but in a completely different way. And it's not fair because it's such grace that I don't deserve. And that joy, that perspective, that it's not fair, puts every circumstance in perspective. Do you have a joy that extinguishes grumblings? Here's a test for you this week. How often do you say the words, it's not fair to God, complaining about some circumstance, about something that's going on, about something that you don't have, about some injustice against you? And how often do you say, it's not fair, appreciating the Lord Jesus and all that he did to suffer and die in our place. What's most unfair? Because the more we appreciate Jesus, the more we'll be unable to, unwilling to complain and grumble. And joy speaks volumes in a grumbling world. Look at verse 15 and 16. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. See, it's remarkable, the attitude of joy when you could grumble. It's completely different. You look at Paul and it is immense that in his context, in his circumstances, he finds joy. Because every individual who doesn't trust in Jesus, every one of us, was once hardwired to be self-entitled, to say it's not fair, to say this is what I deserve, this country must do this for me, it's my right, it's all about me, it's not fair if that doesn't happen. And it's at the very heart of our human nature. And yet, when we trust in Jesus, we'll be different, not because of anything we do, but Look at verse 16, as we hold firmly to the word of life, then we'll be transformed to say it's 
unbelievably not fair that the Lord Jesus died on my behalf. And that brings me more joy than any current circumstance could grieve me. And that is remarkable. And, and Paul says that enables the person who trusts in Jesus to shine like a star in the darkness. When you could grumble at what's going on, but you respond with joy in the gospel, people are attracted to the word of life that you're holding on to. Joy speaks volumes in a grumbling world. And as we follow through the verses, it's just so brilliant that Paul doesn't just leave it there as instructions don't grumble in any situation. He doesn't just leave it there because it could be a bit of a kick in the teeth. It could be quite difficult to hear. But Paul gives us two examples of what it looks like when someone is not self-entitled, not self-centered, not grumbling, not self-absorbed. And it's so brilliant because it's two characters you just want to have in your church. It's two characters you're just desperate to be like. It's two descriptions. You'd be so pleased if someone were to save you. And so the question is, as we look at Timothy and Epaphroditus, is town church full of friends like Timothy and Epaphroditus? Look at Timothy, what a glowing report. Look at verse 20. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. See, Timothy, he's full of action that says at its very heart, I am not living out of self-entitlement. Timothy's proved himself as someone who doesn't look out for his own interests. He says, I'm not most concerned with what I deserve. I'm not most concerned with what's fair. I'm going to look first to the welfare of others. I'm not going to make myself look good. I'm not going to sort myself out first, but Timothy characterizes joy filled service of others. Just as he's learned from Paul. He's a servant of the gospel. He's a servant of God. And so he's a servant of God's people. And you read those words and you say, it'd be brilliant to have Timothy at our church. And you might think, well, okay, I do go out of my way to try and serve people at Town Church Bicester. So it doesn't matter that much if I grumble about them a bit, does it? I can't help grumbling, really, because actually, they're quite frustrating people at Town Church Bicester, if we're honest. When you really try to serve people, it gets quite frustrating. There's some, there's some awkward characters at Town Church Bicester. Well, can you see that sooner or later, that service will collapse because the grumbling, self-seeking nature will destroy ability to serve. It will make it impossible for you to put the needs of others first. 
if I go out of my way to invite someone for dinner, only to grumble that I didn't get an invite back, my attitude will soon destroy my actions. Sooner or later, I'll stop inviting people for dinner. If you go out of your way to text someone who wasn't at church only to grumble when they don't respond back, your attitude will soon destroy your actions. Sooner or later, you'll stop texting people to see if they're okay. If you go out of your way to drop a meal to someone who's in need, only to grumble when they take ages to bring the dishes back. Your attitude will soon destroy your action. Sooner or later, you'll stop taking people meals. If you go out of your way to practically help someone in need, only to grumble that you didn't get the recognition that you deserve, your attitude will soon destroy your action. Sooner or later, you'll stop. Because sacrificial, selfless service is fueled by joy in the gospel, not in self-righteous grumbling. And you might just think, wow, that's just so hard. It's so hard to keep serving and not thinking, I'm doing a good job and people around me aren't that great. It's like you've got to have an endless capacity for disappointment. Because somewhere along the way, I'm surely bound to grumble, aren't I? Well, look at Epaphroditus. Look at Epaphroditus and his capacity for disappointment. Just listen to this for a glowing report. But I think it is necessary to send back to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. It's remarkable that we know so little about Epaphroditus. But when you hear that, he's utterly devoted to the gospel he's got an incredible capacity for disappointment and suffering we don't hear anything really of his skill or his ability hear that last sentence he risked his life to make up the help you yourselves could not give me he risked his life sometimes we aspire to be christians that are able effective inspirational but look at this amazing picture of Epaphroditus he endures he's faithful I read a tweet this week that said this in my 20s I thought I would change the world in my 30s I at least thought I could I sorry I thought I could at least change my country 
in my 40s, I'll be happy to just make it to heaven with my marriage, my family, my sanity and my character intact. Now, I think what he's saying is he wants to be like Epaphroditus, enduring in gospel character. Paul saying what Philippi needs at this time is a person who will keep going through hardship, who will enjoy, who will long for his people, who will find joy in serving the gospel. Epaphroditus, he suffers for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of God's people. Two brilliant pictures of friends, friends of God's people. And so Paul says to us, look back at verse five, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Timothy was transformed to live more and more like Jesus, a sacrificial servant of God's people. Verse eight, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Epaphroditus was transformed to become a bit more like Jesus an obedient endurer for the sake of the gospel. Question for us is, will we be grumblers or will we be sacrificial servants like Timothy? Will we be obedient endurers like Epaphroditus, working out, living out the gospel that has transformed and is transforming us to serve God's people? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who went to the cross on our behalf, who suffered in our place, that we might have life transformed. And Lord, we thank you for these two pictures of Timothy and Epaphroditus who show us what transformed life looks like in serving God's people. Please would you help us to not be grumblers that are self-focused, but Lord, that see the needs of other people and that serve for the sake of the gospel as we become more like the Lord Jesus. Amen.